Psalm 44 in God's Word today, please. Psalm 44. These are the words of Korah, one of the writers of part of the Psalms, and he's speaking of the history of the nation of Israel here, and yet it, it, it sounds so much like the history of the United States when you begin to read it. We have heard with our ears, O God, and our fathers have told us what work you did in their days, in the times of old. And We've heard the stories of America, haven't we, and its founding. How you did drive out the heathen, we would say the British, with your hand. And you planted them, and how you did afflict the people and cast them out. For they got not the land, and referring to Israel here, but we could say we got not our land in possession by our own sword, neither our own right arm did save us. It wasn't our strength, but thy right hand and thy arm and the light of thy countenance because thou hadst a favor unto them. Boy, what a verse. We didn't get this country because of our strength, because of our right arm. We didn't get it because of our own sword or might. When you read the history of George Washington and that ragtag little army that they put together of volunteers, nobody had any military training, and they defeated the greatest army in the world at that time, the British. It's incredible. How could we not say that God was in that, that it was the arm of the Lord that brought about this country? And then down in the end of the psalm, beginning in verse 23, the psalmist gives a prayer. He prays. And the prayer is so appropriate for us 242 years after the birth of this nation because he says, Yea, he says, Awake, why sleepest thou, O Lord? Now just stop and ponder that for a moment. Doesn't it seem like God is asleep right now when we pray to him and we cry out and we don't see an immediate change in the, in the country. And I've been praying my whole ministry life. I've been praying since shortly after the settlers landed in this country. I was wanting to see if you were listening to me at all. I couldn't tell. But I've been praying my whole life. God, turn our country around. It seems like he's asleep, doesn't it? I can tell you he's not asleep. He doesn't do things on my timetable. He does them on his own sovereign plan. That's what he's doing. Lord, it seems like you're sleeping. Please awake, arise, and cast us not off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaveth unto the earth. Arise for our help. There's our prayer today. Lord, arise for our help and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. Thank you, and you may be seated. And so today we celebrate this week the 242nd birthday of our country. 
Our country has lasted as a constitutional and democratic republic far beyond almost any other country that's that type of nation. You see, through most of history up until the time that America came into being, nations were ruled by monarchs. They were called by various names, kings, queens, princes, pharaohs, Caesars, emperors, potentates, czars, sovereigns, sultans. There were a myriad number of names by which rulers were referred to, but every one of them ruled in a way that the founders of our nation said, we do not want a king. We do not want a sovereign over us. And so we reputed, repudiated the course of history in that sense. These rulers up until the birth of America believed that the king had a divine mandate. In fact, they called it the divine right of kings. By that they meant that kings had the right to rule as a result of a divine mandate from Almighty God, that they were not subject to any earthly authority, whatever, that the king answered to no one but to God, and most of them were wicked, and so they didn't answer to God either. And they believed that they had the right to rule because of God's divine blessing or endowment upon them. They ruled with a rod of iron. They were the ones who determined what was right and wrong. These kings and potentates and rulers considered themselves to be above the law, that the law applied to everybody in the kingdom except them. They were above the law. They made the law. In fact, one of them arrogantly said in France, I am the law. What a statement. I am the law. I determine all right and wrong in the realm. And then along came America. I personally believe that God assembled a group of men unique in all of history that his sovereign hand guided and put those men together. Never before and never since has there been a group of men with the wisdom and the knowledge that I believe our founders had when they founded this nation. And America was different because we had no king. Thank God we had no king. We didn't bow our knee to a man. Our constitution was our king. Our constitution had the ultimate authority in the rulership of the nation. Old John Adams said it when he was helping to write the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. And he said, and I quote, we are a nation of laws and not of men. America is a nation of laws. We are governed by law, first of all, not by some man's opinion or whim. And so this idea of the rule of law has made America unique. The message today is the uniqueness of America, the uniqueness of America. And I especially am concerned that you young people listen to me because I don't think you're going to hear this in most schools. I don't think you're going to hear this in the movies. I don't think you're going to hear it from the mainstream media in America today because they're not going to talk about the exceptionalism 
and the uniqueness and the greatness of this country. They're going to take every little single flaw and exploit it and talk about it, exacerbate it, jump up and down on it until they have totally destroyed our confidence and our pride in our nation today. We're seeing that happen all around us. In a recent poll of university and college students in America now, and this has been replicated a number of times, 40%, 40% of the college students in America wish we were under a socialistic government rather than a free enterprise society. This is what we're dealing with now. And the rule of law is what has made us unique, among other things. The rule of law means this, that no man, no woman, no group of people in this country is above the law, that we're all equal under the law. Hear me again. No man, no group, no woman, no person is above the law. The president is not above the law. The congressmen are not above the law. The Supreme Court is not above the law. You and I are not above the law. We are a nation of laws, the rule of law. We are ruled not by a king, but by a constitution that is the basis of our laws. That has made us unique. There were many influences on the founding fathers. Let me talk to you about some of those influences. There were many different ones. John Locke was an English political scientist and writer. His writings endure to this day, though they're being forgotten by current generations. Algernon Sidney was an influential writer who influenced the founders. Aristotle and Plato from back in the history of Greece The Magna Carta that was signed in a meadow in England in 1215, some uh, 500 years before the founders of the country came into being, the Magna Carta was a highly influential document in the founding of the country. Of course, there was Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford was a Presbyterian preacher from Scotland. He wrote one of the most influential books on government governmental theory, dealing with it from the Scripture that anybody has ever written in history. It was called Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish preacher. There was Montesquieu, the uh, French writer who had a profound effect, especially upon Jefferson. But the greatest single influence, in spite of all these great minds and writers, the single greatest influence was the Bible. Dr. Lutz and Dr. Heinemann of the University of Houston a few years ago examined 15,000 items written by the founding fathers. They read their private papers. They read their letters. They read their journals. They read their published writings, their books. They read the Federalist Papers and what they said about the founding of the country And they examined 15,000 different items. And here's what they discovered. That among all those founders and all those 15,000 documents, 34% of those documents referred to the Bible. That the most quoted source 
of all the sources far and away was not Montesquieu or the Magna Carta or all those other people, Aristotle or Plato. The most, quote, the most frequently quoted source was the Holy Bible. And so these men were so heavily influenced by this. 80%, 80% of the political pamphlets and tracts that were published in America during the 1770s, the decade of our freedom, 80% of the published political material was simply sermons reprinted by preachers. Often preachers today are criticized if they deal with any political issue. The conventional wisdom taught to us by the church growth people is don't talk about politics, it'll keep people away. And boy, we haven't talked about it and the pulpits have been silent, and the preachers have weaseled out, and in so doing, we've got a group of people today that the only view of history that they get comes from secular sources that downgrades our country. I think every pulpit ought to flame with love for this country and teaching the Constitution and doing the thing, the kind of preaching I'm doing right now. Now, if I'm promoting myself... Amen. So be it. I, I just feel that every preacher ought to be teaching people to love the country. If they were, I don't think 40% of our students in the country would want to be socialists. In his book, A Worthy Company, Professor M. E. Bradford says, 50 of the 55 signers of the Constitution were members of Orthodox Christian churches who publicly endorsed the Christian faith. 50 of 55 of the men who signed that Constitution were members of Orthodox Christian churches and not only were members, they publicly proclaimed their faith in Jesus Christ. Even a cursory reading of the Declaration of Independence will reveal the powerful influence of the Holy Scripture. Listen to these phrases drawn directly from the Declaration. We are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. It mentions our Creator. These men were creationists. They didn't believe in evolution. They believed there was a God who created the heaven and the earth. America was born with the a belief in creationism. It's written into our documents. They said in another place, we appeal to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, end of quote. They believed that God was the supreme judge, that there was accountability and responsibility by every citizen that someday we would stand in the presence of Almighty God and give an account and they ruled with that in mind. They wrote our documents with that in mind. They said, quote, we place a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, end of quote. We believe we depend upon the fact that God is guiding in the affairs of the nation, that God sees what goes before, and he is directing the affairs of our nation. It's obvious what these men believe. And so America is unique today because we're a nation of laws, and our laws were heavily influenced by the Bible 
all you have to do is read the documents and see that. But secondly, I'll go even further and say that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution reflect a biblical worldview, a biblical worldview. We emphasize that here. We teach here, both in our school and in our church, the importance of thinking biblically. And people can't think biblically, obviously, if they don't know the Holy Scripture. And so we teach that if you learn the Scripture, you begin to see life through the paradigm, through the lens, the framework of God's Word. And very frankly, in every message, I'm trying to shape people's thinking to a biblical worldview. Our teachers teach that. Our our curriculum reflects that, that people will think like Christians as opposed and in contrast to the world when they come here. And in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, you will see that our founders thought the same way. They had a biblical worldview. Let me give you three or four examples. One, the very idea of having a constitution to rule over the country instead of a king, the idea of the constitution itself was based on the concept of a biblical covenant. They had studied the scriptures. They knew them well. And they knew that the Bible is divided into the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, we call it the Old Testament, but it's the same word, New Covenant. They knew that God was a God who made covenants. He made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, and other people throughout history. They understood what a covenant was, a binding agreement a formal binding agreement between one or, or two or more people and God. And so God made a binding agreement with the nation of Israel. And, the, and, and, and his agreement with them was that these 12 separate tribes of people would all agree to a covenant that would bring them into unity as a nation and under him. And so the idea of the covenant gave the founders the idea that America ought to have a covenant. Listen to Samuel Rutherford, the preacher from Scotland in Lex Rex. He wrote it in 1644. He proposed a covenant between ruler and people like the covenant between the 12 tribes of Israel and God. He believed that in the idea of what the founders then called federalism, that the separate states are bound together in a covenant agreement to form a nation. And our founders use this word, and you see it over and over when you think about American history. They talked about federalism. Here's what's interesting. Federalism, the word federalism, comes from the Latin word foitus, and it simply means what? Covenant. Our founding fathers talked about the covenant, the binding agreement that the law will be in the Constitution. The Constitution will be the king. We will be under that king. It will be a nation of laws and not a, a, a nation of men's whims. And our unalienable rights are most likely to be preserved, said Adams in the principles of government when they're set forth in a written constitution. Our founders had another biblical 
worldview, uh, 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 another view of the world that came from the Bible, and that's natural law. You've heard of William Blackstone. He's the most famous lawyer of that period of history. He wrote a commentary that I understand is even used sometimes today. And John Locke, who I've previously referred to, both of them explained that the law of nature, or what they referred to as natural law, referred to God's general revelation in nature. In other words, you can go and look at the stars and say somebody had to do that. You can look at the ocean and say, this is too great to just have happened. You can look at your hand and see that somebody designed that hand. It didn't just happen in some big bang explosion somewhere in time. And so these men, these men believed in natural law that God revealed himself through creation. And they drew that idea from Romans chapter 1 and 2, which I don't have time to tell you about, but read Romans 1 and 2, and you'll see the argument for natural law. And they said, the only reliable basis for sound government and just human relations is natural law. And Locke said, he contrasted natural law with the law of God, which is God's moral law that's written into the Bible, which you have a copy of today as you sit here in our church today. It contains the Ten Commandments, God's moral law, the golden rule, the way that we treat one another, the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels and all the writings of the apostles. All of this encompasses God's God's moral law, pardon me, his spiritual law. And so they believed in the idea of covenant. They believed in the idea of natural law. They believed in the separation of powers. Turn in your Bible with me, Isaiah chapter 33, if you will, for a moment. Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 22. And when I first saw this verse years ago, I read it somewhere and looked it up, and I thought, my, that is incredible. That is an incredible teaching. Isaiah 33 and 22. Because this is the teaching that they based the separation of powers in our Constitution upon. The Lord is our judge. So they said, we're going to divide the government between three groups of people, the judiciary. The Lord is the judge. And then the Lord is our lawgiver. That's the legislature that passes the laws under which we live. And then thirdly, the Lord is our king. And uh, that's the executive branch that carries out the laws that are passed by the legislature. And the idea of the separation of powers comes straight off of the pages of the Scripture. The Declaration and the Constitution reflect a biblical worldview. There is a supreme example of it. One of the writers said, framing a republic requires a balance between human freedom and yet controls human sin and depravity. Madison said, as there is a degree of depravity in mankind that requires a certain degree of circumspection and distrust, so there are other qualities in human nature that justify a certain portion of esteem and confidence, end of quote. You know what he was saying? He was saying that in every human being, there are things that are bad and there are things that are good. 
There are things to be esteemed and respected, and there's that streak within us that's broken and fallen. He got that from the Bible. The separation of powers allows each branch of the government to provide a check on the other. Madison called it the opposite and rival interest. Opposite and rival interest. And so the executive, that would be the president, the administration. They're to carry out the laws. But he doesn't have any money unless the Congress passes money to appropriate so he can fund the carrying out of his duties. And, of course, the Supreme Court determines which rules and laws are constitutional and which policies are not. And so they balance each other. So nobody has supreme power, so will not be under a king. The legislature is not king. The court is not king. The president is not king. The law is the king in America. I should get a better amen for that than that. Each of these checks were motivated by a healthy fear of human nature because these checks, this separation of power, recognizes human dignity that we were all created in God's image and human depravity that we are broken and fallen as individuals. And you see both sides there, grace and law. They operate in the government as they should. And so you and I should not be too optimistic about anything going on in this country. And we shouldn't be too pessimistic about anything going on in this country. The framers instituted and constructed a government that had a deep sense of realism. Man is wonderful. He's made in the image of God. He's capable of things that only God could do. At the same time, he is broken and controlled by his sinful nature, and we ought to be cautious because there's always that propensity for that to break out. They had a biblical view of human nature, and they incorporated it in the Constitution. James Madison argued in Federalist Number 51, government must be based upon a realistic view of human nature. Quote, but what is government itself? Now listen to this. But the greatest reflector of all on human nature, if men were angels, do you know any who are? If men were angels, no government would even be necessary. But if angels were to govern us, neither external or internal controls on the government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over other men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the people. But in the next place, oblige the government to control itself. And today, I think most of us would agree that the problem is not the government con govern the governing the people. It is the government governing itself that's out of control in America this morning. The Bible teaches us that all men are sinners, so the Constitution recognized that. We're sinners for two reasons. By our very nature, we're born sinful, and then we practice sin. And since all of us are sinners... Since every one of us are sinners, then nobody is superior to anybody else. We're all equal. 
We're equal under the law. All men, the Constitution says in the Declaration, are created equal. It recognizes that we're flawed. And by the way, in a little side note here, because all men are sinners, their greatest need is not more government. Their greatest need is Jesus Christ. The greatest need we have is redemption. I ate lunch the other day with a man who doesn't profess to be a Christian. He's of a different religion altogether. And somehow or other, the conversation drifted to Hitler and his atrocities and his killing of six million Jewish people. And the man said, I don't understand how anybody could be that wicked. I said to him, I understand it. And he said, what do you mean? You think you understand Hitler? I said, absolutely. Hitler was a sinner. He had a flawed, broken nature, and he gave in to it. And due to the circumstances of his day, he let it completely take over. I personally think that he was controlled by demons. I think Hitler was demon-possessed. Nobody could be that wicked without some supernatural help. And he said, you really believe this, don't you? And I said, I absolutely do. Just read your newspaper. Look at the world. Make the argument for me that man is not flawed and man is not sinful. He said, that's interesting. He didn't agree, but I could tell he was thinking, you see. Now, the implications are this. Listen to me carefully. It is not, it is not the church's mission to try to enforce the law. It is the church's mission to proclaim the gospel of grace and mercy and forgiveness. It is the government's role to fulfill the law. Jeff Sessions said that the other day. He was criticized for it because he told people in the book of Romans chapter 13, he says the purpose of the government is to enforce law, to punish lawbreakers, and to reward those who keep the law. I want you to understand something because this is a trend sweeping the country. The Southern Baptist Convention met two weeks ago, and there are the, there's hundreds of blogs and articles already coming out of great concern that the convention has taken a sharp left-hand turn, elevating social justice issues above the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Uh, hear me clearly and please understand, seek to understand. It is not the church's role, this one or any other, to make a more just society. That's the role of government. It is the role of the church to proclaim that all men are sinners, that Christ loves all men, that he shed his blood on the cross, and that through the shedding of his blood on the cross, we can be redeemed and transformed. We are not trying to enforce law on anybody as a church. We're trying to change people from the inside out through a new birth, through a new birth. And it's the government's mission to enforce justice. It's the church's mission to proclaim the gospel that there's forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and in the cross. And, it's, and so don't ever forget that. Our pri now, are we interested in some social justice issues? Yes, we are. But that's not our primary mission. 
And so I call your attention to the board. Fill the city. We've knocked on 7,681 homes, and I rejoice in that because this week we got completely rained out Monday night, and yet we're only 320 uh, doors or so short of our goal. And what we're doing there, ladies and gentlemen, is the mission of the church, to get the gospel to every door, to talk to every single person about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the role of the church. And so America, in conclusion, is unique because its constitution is in harmony with the Bible. What, is the, what does the Bible teach people? It teaches unity. It teaches justice. It teaches peace. It teaches that there's a general welfare and blessings that comes as a result of civil, civil and religious liberty. All these are the subjects of Christianity, and they're secured when it, the Christian religion is practiced in a culture. And we're all concerned today. I hope we are. We should be. I hope we're more concerned than we're indifferent about this. When you look at the participation today of people in civic affairs, when you see how few people vote, when you see that when I preach on this, people nod off, they say that's not exciting, that's boring talking about the Constitution. I had a man here recently that spoke on the Constitution. He's one of the most authoritative figures. He's a lawyer from St. Louis. And somebody sent me an email and said, I hope you don't have him again. That was boring. I want to tell you something. The rest of the world doesn't think he's boring. He's listened to by law school professors and politicians all across the world. No, we better be concerned about this, folks. My goodness. Because a free people cannot long endure if there's no... The Constitution will mean nothing to the majority of the people if they're not virtuous and morally strong people. Adams said, and I quote, human passions unbridled by morality and religion will break the strongest cords of the Constitution like a whale going through a net. De Tocqueville came over here, a French philosopher. He wrote a book that's often quoted still today. He traveled all across America. He visited the schools, the factories, the homes, the businesses, the churches. Here's his quote. You've heard it. I searched for the greatness of America, and he talked about her factories and all that. And he said, I believe that America is great because she's good. And then Tocqueville says, it was not until I went into the churches of America and I saw the pulpits, here's his words, flaming with righteousness that I understood why America is great. America is great because she's good, but when she ceases to be good, de Tocqueville said, she will no longer be great. End of quote. We are a great country today, economically, 
militarily. I read this week we spend ten we spend more money on our military than the next ten largest armies in the world. And I'm happy for that. I support that. Because as the president said this week, if we can be so strong then nobody will bother to attack us. There's safety through that. On the other hand, we recognize that America is great. But I also have to tell you this morning, America is wicked. Morally, spiritually, we've turned from God. You know that. Our government is corrupt. Oh, how cor- you saw this week. People working to undermine the president of the United States before he was even elected in high powers, in high positions of government. Worst of all, we've killed 60 million of our unborn. We have exported our pornography and our filthy movies, our vile music and art to the world, and we've contaminated them. A missionary told me in Central America when I was down there six weeks ago, I love my country, but our country is corrupting the people of Central America. I said, how so? He said, the music, the movies, Hollywood. We know that education has become propaganda to destroy the Christian faith. And there's a great deal of apathy. This civilization wrote a man this week, died because it didn't want to be bothered. It just didn't care. And old John Adams said it so well, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. As long as America is good, she'll be great. There are millions of people in America this morning that feel like we. They they want to be under law. And they do pray for the country and they love the Lord. But there's almost an equal number, according to the polls, that want nothing to do with our heritage, our tradition, our history, our belief. 